I think the multi-channel, multidisciplinary approach was fundamental. I mean, we had a wonderful team and uh, we all worked together. We had great fun. It was exciting. It was new. Welcome to the final episode of our inaugural season of Hearing Health Today. In today's episode, we'll take a walk down memory lane with the pioneer of the multi-channel cochlear implant, Professor Graham Clark, who will discuss how it all began, the advancements in technology over the years, and the impacts it has had on clinical care. This is a podcast for hearing health professionals. If you are a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Professor Clark, thank you for joining us on this episode of Hearing Health Today. It's a real pleasure to have you on the program. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be with you and uh, to share my journey in some ways. Out of curiosity, Professor Clark, where are we reaching you today? You're actually reaching me at uh, our home in Eltham in Melbourne, Victoria, because we're also in lockdown. Mm. So you're actually in my office, the office where I've spent 40 or so years working on major things for cochlea. Speaking of your history with cochlear implants, maybe just to kick off this interview, how have you seen the technology evolve from the moment you first invented the multi-channel cochlear implant up through now? What's been the biggest change that you've seen in the technology? Well, firstly, we went through a whole lot of technological developments to start to get the prototype done and to get the early results. From that point, I've seen the refinement that's taken place in the engineering to make it smaller and more reliable and give us more flexibility in the types of signals we can present to patients. And Mm -hmm. really, that's the technological advances that have taken place. I'm curious, when you first implanted that patient back in Victoria, what did clinical care our post-surgical care look like for cochlear implants at at that point in time? The uh, first patient was a challenge because some of my colleagues had whispered that I might kill my patient. And uh, Mm. so it was a very traumatic, stressful time. So I went overboard with care to make sure that there was no real infection and uh, he was looked after. But of course, uh, that didn't quite work smoothly post-operatively. He collapsed, he fainted, and we were all in tenterhooks, but uh, it was just a bypass. One thing that I've always been fascinated about is when you first were working on this new innovation, how did you actually think that patients would be treated after receiving the implant? Did you always know that it would be an audiologist that took care of a patient afterwards, or how did that evolve, I guess, from the the very first moments of cochlear implantation? That's a very important and interesting question. Uh, my first associations were very close with the engineers in developing mm-hmm. this. And uh, I actually thought that engineers would play the key role, but it turned out differently because uh, there was a great need for personal involvement from the clinicians in developing mm-hmm. the language further. And also in charge of the audiology school, I was very able then to bring in the audiologists. But we did feel at first they should be engineers and we finished up with better training for audiologists to see what a wonderful job they do. 
Interesting. And what led to that shift? How did you come to the realization that maybe it might be better to have this integrated into audiologist scope of practice as opposed to having an engineer take care of cochlear implant patients? Well, well, the reason that we moved towards audiologists being primarily involved was firstly, they needed the extra training in uh, what was going on. But also, there were many human issues, there were many personal issues that were much more effectively carried out and managed by audiologists who are clinically trained. Engineers are wonderful people, but they're not good at necessarily relating to people. Yeah, that is a really fascinating insight. I guess coming at this from the science angle, when did the science of how to actually create a cochlear implant and um, figure out how to actually surgically implant the device evolve into more of a problem around clinical management and how to identify patients and how to treat them postoperatively? Were you intimately involved, you and your team sort of in that transition? I became a jack of all trades. Yeah, okay. (laughs) A true innovator. (laughs) I really had to find leadership as scientist, surgeon, and audiologist, because I ran the course in audiology as well. So I don't know that I did anything well, but I had to take over all these areas and try and integrate them and see that they went well for the patient. Just stepping back a bit, I heard that one of your inspirations as an early child was a motivation to fix ears, as your primary school teacher put it, um, due to your father's hearing loss. As you sort of progressed through your career in academia, how did your interest in creating something like the cochlear implant come about? Yes, my interests developed and evolved. Uh, At five-year-old, I was just keen to see if I could one day help people like my father, who was very deaf. But then as I grew up, I also was inspired by the science that Louis Pasteur mm-hmm. used to carry out to develop uh, antiseptics and uh, treatment of infections. That used to be on my parents' bookshelves. Mm. So then I gradually moved towards being an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. And then it was only then that this passion to do research emerged, and I felt I'm really going back to trying to be a research scientist. And I, I guess, really, Blair Simmons wrote a very key article when I was in the middle of taking out tonsils and doing things at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. (laughs) And uh, I said there and then, you know, I'm leaving, I'm taking a risk, I'm taking a salary decrease, but I want to do research for the rest of my career. And how old were you at that point in time? At that age, I was in my late 20s, early 30s. And uh, I always remember writing to Sir John Eccles, who was a Nobel laureate in physiology and asking him what I should do. And uh, John Eccles said, uh, back to me. I was too old at the age of 30. (laughs) And I once sat with his daughter in uh, a uh, dinner and I said this to her and she said, oh, I'm glad you didn't take my dad's advice. I never did. So (laughs) yeah, that was how, though, I had to make this switch from being a clinician 
to being a research scientist surgeon. And I'm glad I did it that way because it was very important to be both surgeon, scientist, uh, clinician, and take on board the various different elements at that stage. Now I think the field has changed and there's much more room for specialists and development in different areas. So what was your first research project that you undertook as a researcher? My first research project as a research worker was to see whether single channel stimulation really had potential to help people understand speech because that was uh, just becoming apparent at the time. So I went and felt from also being inspired by Blair Simmons that good science was really needed to be able to work out whether single channel or maybe query Monkley channel stimulation was desirable. And it was clear from my PhD studies that single channel stimulation would not work. So what was that eureka moment that led you to, I guess, the discovery of the multi-channel cochlear implant? Well, I had, let's say, perhaps three eureka moments. Okay, all right. (laughs) The first eureka moment of substance was after one had done the very important, careful studies to make sure it was safe for Rod Saunders, our first patient, that he had multi-channel stimulation. In other words, stimulating different sites along the cochlea gave him different pitch-like sensations. And then, surprise, surprise, not only did he get a pitch sensation, he heard vowels, and that was my first eureka moment, you might say. What was that like when you're working with your very first patient and you have the realization that he can actually hear vowels? What was your reaction or the team's reaction to that? Oh, it's very exciting uh, to uh, know that something was going on in his brain that had potential to develop multi-channel stimulation to give him speech understanding. And it was only by careful studying of that, that at that end of 1978, we worked out a speech code that would help him. And at the end of that year, we gave him the first trial and he heard open set speech that was never possible with single channel stimulation. And it was then that I burst into tears of joy. I've only ever done this twice, but that was at a eureka moment. So you said you had three eureka moments. Uh, So I think that was the second one. What was your third eureka moment? The third eureka moment was on adults who had had hearing before going deaf. Mm -hmm. And at that stage, the challenge also was, and the passion for me was to help deaf children. And uh, would it work if deaf children had never heard before? Would they hear these strange electrical signals and be able to understand speech and language? In due course, from adults to children, I found that uh, it was possible. And then we went and studied these children with language. And as they got younger and they got operated on, the language 
that these children develop this mm. verbal open set or the uh, spoken language was so good i just was blown away i never expected expected it to be so good and now i just i i i, I get teary still mm. That is really fascinating, I guess, just to learn about the trajectory of the technology. When you first set out, did you have any idea that this might work with children or were you really just focused on adults first and had the thought about working with children who were deaf later down the road? I tried to do it as a surgeon or a scientist should, study it carefully and take the results as they came. I mm -hmm. tried to always say, let's not expect something and get the wrong results and fool ourselves. Yeah. So I did not really expect children to do as well. And because of that, when I had got approval from the FDA for work on adults who had hearing before going deaf, I covered my options by also developing a system for tactile stimulation for children. So I was keeping the options open and that actually faded away after we did such successful work with children. But we were doing very well with what we called a tickle talker, which was putting electrodes on the nerves in the fingers. So I'm sorry, you called it a tickle talker? Is that? That's correct. A tickle talker. Okay. I like that. <laughs> so how did exactly did the tickle talker work? Well, that, that was a little interesting personal story. At that stage, electrical stimulation was painful and it didn't really work that well because it was too painful. And vibrators were too big and power hungry. So during the uh, experiments on the last day when the money would all run out, I was... Uh, put myself in as the guinea pig and the subject, and they stimulated the medial cutaneous nerve of the forearm. Mm -hmm. And having done anatomy, I knew well what it was, and it was pleasant enough. And then I extrapolated from that because on either side of the fingers, there are nerve bundles going down. So I then suggested we put the array of frequencies mm. all along the sides of the fingers, and that led to a interface, a connection of electrodes on the hand, and that was where the tickle talker arose. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> I, I'd never heard that story before. <laughs> the multi-channel cochlear implants made leaps and bounds of progress in the last 40 years. And since you have such a unique perspective, having seen the cochlear implant from the moment of inception all the way through to now, how do you feel like the multi-channel cochlear implant will evolve in the next 10, 15, 20, even 40 years? It's very hard to uh, predict with such advances in technologies now. I think we're getting to a stage where we will see totally implantable cochlear implants. Now that has real interest and potential. Now there's really excitement in artificial intelligence. Yep. And I have a feeling with what is exploding in quantum uh, computing mm -hmm. that that will be the next major development that will involve 
uh, we think cochlear implants, and and also with nanotechnologies. So there's lots of potentially exciting developments, I guess, could happen to give high quality sound to most deaf people within that period of time. How important was a multidisciplinary approach to the original research that you did that led to the multi-channel cochlear implant? Well, I think the multi-channel, multidisciplinary approach was fundamental. I mean, we had a wonderful team and uh, we all worked together. We had great fun. It was exciting. It was new. It was uh, very challenging to bring everyone together so that everyone, I, I did always feel that everyone should know something of what everyone else's mm-hmm. expertise was so could we all bring it together and generate ideas. Did the disciplines that you had as part of the team change from those early days through to sort of when the technology was a little bit more robust? Did you start to bring in, I guess, experts from different fields as you understood more and characterized the problems in more detail? I don't think so. I think the the same disciplines and the same methods of uh, examination and testing and science are all the same. Only mm-hmm. now we're seeing more work on computing and uh, also on nanotechnologies, which might bring in more other sure. disciplines. Yes. Just to pivot a bit, I wanted to ask a little bit about the clinical care model that surrounds cochlear implants. So how did that evolve in those early years of cochlear implantation? And I guess similar to the question we had previously, how do you think that might evolve in the uh, years going forward? The clinical care associated with the research was fundamental to my perspective. I partly felt the surgeon side of me that clinical care was fundamental to the research, that we weren't Mm -hmm. just operating on patients and doing experiments on patients because there was a feeling at the time that we should just find out how to code sound. My first patients didn't come for that reason. They came to get help. And so I had to sometimes short-circuit research. I sometimes had to put a priority on clinical care because fundamentally, they were my patients yeah. who wanted help yeah. in their lifetime. They didn't want to wait 10 years, 20 years mm. to get help. And that's how, for us, at any rate, this model between science, surgery, engineering, and clinical care evolved. It was really patient overall management total patient management and care. And I still believe that any research now should have that sort of approach where surgery or medicine combines with research scientists as a patient needs help. Was that holistic approach to care common when you were doing research in those early days? Or is that a pretty innovative way to tackle the problem? No, it wasn't so common. There were different groups around the world also working on this issue. And one of the advantages we had in Australia 
was the tyranny of distance because I had personally to bring the whole team under the one roof, mm-hmm. whereas in the United States and elsewhere, the groups were spread around and there wasn't the same opportunity to have the interaction, which we had to do because yeah. everyone was there together. In your research activities, when did you realize, wow, we might have a product here? When was that sort of light bulb moment where you thought, oh, gosh, I think this is going to work? Like, I think we've got an actual marketable product. The uh, idea of a product was uh, born very early out of necessity. It was just after we planted the first patient right in 1978 because I was running out of money. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you needed a product. <laughs> I was running out of money. In the end of 1978, if we hadn't got some good results, at least the possibility of speech understanding with Rod, the funding might have dried up. But at that stage, the government, the Australian government was coming to the party. Dude, when you set out, like when you set out on this journey uh, to research hearing loss, did you always know that you wanted to create a product? No, no, no. I wanted to help people. Uh, but, but helping people through making a product was uh, the necessity that evolved because at that stage, Australians did not think very much industrially. You know, this was the f- only the first patent of note that the University of Melbourne had ever taken out. Wow. Okay. It was only one of the earliest developments in industry that the Australian industry, the Australian government had ever carried out. We didn't even have an ethics committee at the IND hospital. Hmm. I had to set up the first ethics committee to even do research in patients. So it was all very new. Wow. So there were quite a number of, it sounds like, even bureaucratic barriers that you had to to move in order to drive this research forward. Absolutely. I felt at one stage, everything I did was breaking new ground. Well, we're really thankful that you did break that new ground, <laughs> Professor Clark, uh, as are the hundreds and thousands of people around the world who've benefited from this technology. And out of curiosity, if um, you had the opportunity, um, and I guess you do have the opportunity through this podcast, uh, to speak directly to hearing health professionals who are treating cochlear implant patients today, what would you say to them? I would say, firstly, you are most fortunate to be able to work with patients and people you've really privileged to give them an opportunity to uh, hear and communicate. You know, just on this question of audiology, I put together the first course in audiology in Australia. Really? Yes. So that was just another little side issue. (laughs) And what happened was that uh, at that stage, we were thinking of uh, a few things that were emerging in the audiological field and the technologies took over and there was almost nothing to really uh, give audiologists something to of substance to get involved in. And I really think, I may be exaggerating, the advent of the cochlear implant for us helped save the whole discipline of this emerging subject audiology. 
So were there not audiologists when you first started doing research in the 70s? Firstly, there were no audiologists when I first started my training at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney. I did the audiometry uh, mm -hmm. testing because the, when the, the audiologists in Australia were psychologists at the Australian Acoustics Laboratories, mm -hmm. they weren't specifically trained. It was only through certain people here in Melbourne uh, who felt the need to develop this further, that audiology evolved in Australia. But the advent of the cochlear implant mm -hmm. made a great difference to audiologists. And now audiologists play such an important role in uh, audiology, but particularly they do so with children because language and learning to use these new signals at an early age is fundamentally important. Mm -hmm. One must say it's not enough to do the surgery or the engineering, yeah. but you've got to do the rehabilitation or the rehabilitation for the children. But the results are so fantastic. Yeah, it's so it just blows me away. I think when you see um, the speech and language of children who have early intervention and, and what that looks like versus what it looked like in the past when cochlear implants weren't a possibility or were, when people were intervening later in life. Well, that's right. As I said, I, I never expected it to be quite as spectacular and they brings tears to my eyes still. I feel real privileged to have been able to help. Professor Clark, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a phenomenal opportunity to speak with you, and we really thank you for all the contribution that you've made to the hearing health community. Well, I must say thank you very much for inviting me to uh, express these uh, thoughts and ideas, and uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I uh, hope it will benefit and continue to benefit many, many people in the future and will be a great success to uh, other people. And a special thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us on the very first season of Hearing Health Today. We've already got season two in the works with a whole host of exciting topics, so stay tuned. Until then, stay safe. Just a quick reminder, the views of the interviewees in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Cochlear Limited or its subsidiaries. This material is intended for health professionals. If you are a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Outcomes may vary, and your health professional will advise about the factors which could affect your outcome.